Well, Father, we come before you eager to hear your word, to hear what you have for us. Lord, we thank you for the life of Paul and the ministry that he had and how you worked within the friendships that you gave him to allow that to happen. And Lord, as I talk about friendship today, I, I pray that we will all will be driven to be the friend who will drive people to Christ and proclaim your name. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I have heard it said, and I think it's true, that when you choose your friends, you choose your destiny. When you choose your friends, you choose your destiny. You can't choose your family, that's chosen for you. You can choose to love them, but who you choose as your friends in a large measure reflects who you are and who you want to be. Now, when I look at my time here, I see any, any measure of success that I've had can be uh, attributed to God placing me in the right place at the right time with the right relationships, right? With the right relationships. And you look at just ministry in general. When Jesus came to earth, he surrounded himself with relationships. He had 12 disciples, and within the 12 disciples, he kind of had the, the inner three. And then when he went up to heaven, what did he do? He sent down the Holy Spirit to form the body of Christ so that collectively the church can reach the world. And you look at even this theology of the body of Christ. Who taught us the body of Christ? Where do we see it in Scripture? We see it in the writings of Paul. And Paul not only taught about the body of Christ, he lived in the context of the body of Christ. And, and it's really easy to look at Paul and see him as a one-man missionary machine, right? Going from place to place on his own. But he traveled with teams. He supported teams. He loved working with people alongside of people. You know, God used him, but not him alone. And you, you see the importance of his relationships, especially at the end of the letters. And 2 Timothy is no different. In fact, turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, 19, or 4, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 15. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he has strongly opposed our message. Now, in some sense, this can be, or can seem, a, a little bit anticlimactic. Especially after we just read, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Mic drop, 
right? You would think that it would end there. But given the expense of travel and lack of a postal service in any meaningful way, Paul also had to address some personal concerns that he had. And so there's a series of postscripts. And what these postscripts do is they kind of pull back the curtain, so to speak, that Paul wasn't just writing literature and letters. He was ministering in the context of a local church with various relationships. He had a team of people who supported what he did. And so as I kind of looked at this passage, I, what I saw, and I think what we see, is three kinds of relationships. There's the good, and most of them are good. There's the bad, and then there's the evil relation. And all of us probably have these kinds of people in our lives. And all of us need to learn how to navigate them. But what we find is that Paul had friends, and these friends supported him in not only his growth in Christ, but the spread of Christ. You see, a Christ-centered friendship is one that not only helps you grow closer to Christ, but it helps you to proclaim Christ and minister to Christ. So this is what we're going to do today. What we're going to do is we're going to go through kind of a survey of this passage, and then we're going to look at each of these categories of friends, the good friends. We'll learn about having a Christ-centered relationship from what they do well, the bad and evil friends. We'll learn about how to have a Christ-centered relationship by not doing what they do. Fair enough? And you have to remember, what's the purpose of a Christ-centered friendship? It's not only to become more like Christ, but it's to help us to proclaim Christ. So let's go through the survey. Look at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. So Paul, after giving the climax of the letter, has a postscript. And in this case, he wants Timothy, his beloved son, to make the trip from Ephesus to Rome. Now, apparently the wheels of Roman justice grind rather slowly. Paul is certain that he will die, but he also believes that there is enough time between his death and when he wrote that letter from Rome to Timothy in Ephesus that Timothy could make the trip, that the letter could travel there and Timothy can make the trip to, to see him. Now, doing so will uh, require a fair amount of sacrifice on the part of Timothy, but it's occasioned by a minor crisis that seems to have happened. Verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Paul's inner circle was fractured. Now, in fairness to Crescens and, and Titus and and Tychicus, who we'll see later on, they were dispatched by Paul. And that, but, but Demas and Luke, who, who often appear as a team with Paul, who were there during his first imprisonment in Rome, well, Luke is by himself because Demas, in love with the present world, has departed. We'll talk more about that later on. 
And so he's calling Timothy to come back in light of this, to send some reinforcements. And, and as he travels, verse 10, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. A- apparently, uh, Paul has some designs for Mark. He wants to talk to Mark about perhaps some ministry project, just like he wants to talk to Timothy. Then we see in verse 12, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Now, Tychicus might be familiar if you know about the letter to Ephesians and Colossians. It was likely transported by Tychicus. And so the idea that you can conceive here is that Tychicus was traveling with this letter to give to Timothy, and he would probably stay on as a substitute for Timothy as he goes back to Rome. Then verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the, the parchments. Now Troas would have been on the way. So while you are traveling through Troas, could you do me a favor and talk to my friend Carpus? I left my cloak there. You know, the cloak was a kind of a round, thick piece of maybe wool or some other material that he would wear as a cape. And in a cold, dank Roman prison, especially before winter, it would be very nice to have these things. He also has his personal library with Carpus, and so he requests that Timothy bring that with him as well. Now, we don't know what was written. Uh, it could be personal notes. It could be drafts of letters he was planning on sending. It could be copies of the Old Testament scriptures. But they were of tremendous value to him. And then, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So if Timothy was going to stop in Troas, he needs to be on the lookout for a certain Alexander the coppersmith. Now, Alexander was a pretty common name in that day and age, and so we're not quite sure who he is, but here is a plausible reconstruction. Now, do you remember in 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul talks about how he had to come in and regulate and send out some false teachers, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so Paul had to come to the Ephesian church, regulate, and he kicked out two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so it is plausible that this is the same Alexander who went up to Troas, where there was a well-known contingent of, of metal workers, and he continued to blaspheme the gospel, to, to speak against it, to deny the faith in a very public, bold way. And when he saw Paul, he did him great harm. Now that word for did great harm uh, literally means, or can mean to show forth and exhibit, is used in a legal context of accusing. And so what may have happened is that when Alexander saw Paul, he began to level public accusations against him and that Paul was arrested in Troas, which would explain why Carpus has his cloak and his parchments and his books. 
Carpets, before I get carted off, I want you to take these, okay? I'll send somebody to get them later on. And so Alexander was responsible for selling Paul down the river. And Paul says, if you're in Troas and you see Alexander, you walk the other way. After what he did to me and his opposition to the gospel, the man's evil, as we'll talk about later on. Okay, so that is a broad sketch of the world that Paul is dealing with. And so as we kind of look at each of these individuals, they fit into three categories, the good, the bad, and the evil. And, and we'll start with the good. The first good guy is Timothy. Timothy is the sacrificial son. Paul has clear affection for Timothy. He says in Timothy 1-2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Paul was single, never married, but he had children. Timothy was one of them, his spiritual child, not physiologically, but spiritually. He says in 1-4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. See, Paul is asking Timothy to, uh, to really make a big journey. This is more than like, can you take me to the airport, okay? Man, I mean, somebody must be a good friend if they're going to drive you to the airport, right? How about driving you to the airport in Kabul, right? That would be another big ask. He was to make a three-month journey over land and sea and travel in that day and age. I mean, you had to sleep with one eye open. There were bad people. There wasn't an active police force. It was very dangerous. And not only that, when he stepped on a ship, you weren't sure if he was going to actually make it across the strait. This would take three months of hard traveling to get there and then three months of hard traveling to get back. It would mean that he would have to set up his church so that Tychicus or some other substitute can come in and make sure things are in place. Not only that, Timothy was going to walk into Mordor. I had to make a Lord of the Rings reference here somewhere. This is it. Right? This was a dark place. Remember who was presiding over, who's the emperor at this time? It, it, it's Nero. Nero was hemorrhaging credibility after the great fire of Rome where he was accused of, of playing the fiddle as it was burning down. And we're not sure if that's true, but that was the accusation and that was the sentiment that they had towards the emperor. And so to, to kind of increase, increase his approval ratings, he blame shifts to this strange sect that's not Jewish, that's not Roman, they're Christians, and started to make some accusations against them and there was widespread persecution. In fact, one ancient writer talks about how Christians were punished for sport at garden parties, that they were covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination. Paul was an enemy of the state, and Timothy was going to visit him, visit the enemy of the state. I mean, it's a big ask. And you might chide Paul for maybe being selfish, asking Timothy to come all the way over here, but 
But Timothy would have been glad to do it. This is Paul. This was his spiritual father. This is a man who he, he deeply loved. This was a man who he had a Christ-centered relationship with. And you know what? If you have a Christ-centered relationship and you love each other in the way Christ loved you, it only makes sense that you would sacrifice for the other person. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his family, for his friends. You see, if you want to have a Christ-centered relationship, sacrifice is part of the package. Um, and, and there's different ways that this might show itself. It may not be taking them to the airport or, or taking a six months out of your life. And bear in mind, Timothy was also single. Okay, so got to lower that expectation a little bit, right? He was single, Paul was single, but they were a spiritual family. But there's different sacrifices that, that you have to make often as a friend. I think there's a, the sacrifice of awkwardness. A friend of yours has a broken relationship. Perhaps they've been suddenly widowed. Um, I remember as a college pastor, there are two friends, Ben and Andy, not their real names, but Andy uh, lost his um, sister to leukemia. And as I was counseling him, it was very clear that that Ben just kind of stayed away. And as I talked to Ben, Ben said, well, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And it became very clear that their relationship was built on a mutual love of, of surfing, going to the same church, and being the same age. He would not enter the, the awkwardness. Uh, another sacrifice is the sacrifice of forgiveness. Right? For, forgiveness is a costly act. Right? Let's say your friend um, shares some secret that you confided in him, perhaps some personal struggle that you're dealing with. You talk to your friend about it, and it gets back to you that your friend has actually talked to multiple people about it had spread the circle far beyond what you wanted, and it was very hurtful and damaging. Now, in that case, there is a certain amount of pain that you feel, right? And justice is that they feel the same pain that you feel. You were embarrassed by that disclosure. You hope that they're embarrassed. You want them on their knees, groveling before you. I can't believe I did this to you. I am so sorry. I have not slept a wink for the last two weeks. I look at myself and I'm just so disappointed. What can you ever do to forgive me? Right? That's what you want, right? Because you felt that pain, you want them to feel that pain. But when you forgive, you say, no, no. I forgive you. The debt's been paid. And you seek to restore that relationship. And that does take sacrifice on your part. That's why forgiveness is so hard for so many people. Another way we have to sacrifice is the sacrifice of time. Remember, Timothy was taking six months out of his life at a minimum for the sake of Paul. I was reading a, a book on friendship and it talked about how Recently, there's been kind of a shift away from really investing time in relationships. 
Like people used to talk face to face because that was the only way that you can talk and that was replaced by a phone call. So you can have that conversation, you just don't have to travel. And then when that became a little bit too inconvenient, people would call when they know the other person is busy so they could just leave a voice message. And when that became too much and might lead to going back and forth, they would just type an email. That way they don't have to really think about how they say what they say. They can just write it down. And then when the grammar is too much for them, they start texting. You see what I'm saying? Where it's a minimization of friendship where people don't want to sacrifice to spend that kind of time. You see, to have a Christ-centered friendship, part of it is a certain degree of sacrifice on your part. So that's one. Beloved Timothy, the sacrificial son. Then you have loyal Luke. Loyal Luke. Luke alone is with me. Now, he's not dissing uh, some of the other people. He is dissing Demas here, okay? I thought they were going to both stay. And, and they often worked as a team. During the first imprisonment, we read in Philemon 23 through 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends you his greetings. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. In Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And so while Demas went away, Luke stayed behind. He tended to the needs of Paul with companionship. And, and who knows, Paul might have had some other uh, needs where a doctor would be very helpful to have around. But he was... He was loyal, and it was at great personal cost because Paul was in prison. I mean, think about it. If you had a grandson who was in prison or a father who was in prison or a son who was in prison and some stranger were to ask you about, let's say, your son, your son, oh, tell me about your kids. Oh, you have three. Oh, really, what do they do? Well, one's a doctor and another is a lawyer and another one's in prison. <laughs> right? You wouldn't say that the same way, right? There would be a sense of shame. And that's in our culture, which is not, which is not an honor-shame culture. But back then, to say, oh, you know, who's your pastor? Oh, he's in prison. What did he do? Right, you think about who goes to prison. And bear in mind, Paul was being executed for being an enemy of the state. And in the Roman Empire, that was the worst thing you could possibly be. So Luke would have had every reason to try to just keep his distance, right? Because it would have been like visiting a terrorist in prison. Because that was the type of accusations against Paul. Anti-state activities. But he was not ashamed to, to stand by his friend. I mean, this would be like the, the politician who's upwardly mobile, who's not ashamed to go to a church that teaches biblically faithful view, a biblically faithful view of, of human sexuality. This is the, the friend of yours who gets invited to the inner circle, the popular party, and makes sure that you get invited too. They are not ashamed of you. They're not ashamed of Christ. They're not ashamed of Christ's people. They identify with those who the world might despise. That was Luke. Then you have reconciled Mark. 
reconciled Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, when you think about Mark, you think about John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and you think he had some obvious credentials here, right? He was very useful. But it wasn't always uh, that way. We read that during their second missionary journey, Barnabas, who was Paul's traveling partner, got into a dispute with Paul. In Acts 15, 36 through 41, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to their work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Now that word sharp disagreement is an emotional, intense conversation. Okay, Paul and Barnabas went at it over whether or not to take Mark. Come on, Paul. I mean, give him another chance. I mean, isn't that what the gospel is about? Listen, my friend, the stakes are too high to take that man who abandoned us. How do we know he's not going to do it again? Right? It's the concern for the organization versus the concern for the individual. And it was so intense and so sharp that they just said, fine, I'll go here, you go there. If you want Mark, you take him. And yet... Here we have Paul asking Timothy, make sure you get Mark. And not only just get Mark, but he's useful to me. I mean, there, there is a tendency to allow, fool me once, shame on me. Oh, no, let me try that again. <laughs> Forget that, edit this, I realize... No, that's not right. That's not right. Okay, here we go. There's a tendency to say, fool me once, shame on you. That's right. Fool me twice, shame on me. Thank you for helping me, by the way. See, we're a team. We're doing this together. Now, is that in the Bible? No. And there might be some wisdom to that. But that's not what Paul did. Betray me once. Shame on you. Betray me twice. Oh, you're not going to do that because you're never going to be in a position to do so. That is not what he did. Paul had a heart for reconciliation. He was willing to trust him again, to, to give him another chance. I'll forgive him, just never will trust him again. That's not in the Bible. That's not reconciliation. That's ultimately a denial of what the Holy Spirit can do in somebody's life. And we all benefit from this. And then we have trustworthy carpus. Now, we don't know much about him, but we know that Paul gave him his cloak and his books, especially his parchments. Now, 
I love books. We love books in our family. Books are precious to us. But you can buy a book at the library sale for a quarter. That wasn't the case back then. I mean, books, to put together a, a book, there were two ways of doing it. One could be through papyrus, where you would just kind of layer these reeds that they grow in Egypt, one over the other, and you'd write on it. And the content made it very valuable. And the other way they made books is by making these codexes. It'd be, you know, this is a codex here, where they take animal skin and stretch it out and make very thin sheets so that you can actually write on it, erase it, and write on it. The paper by itself was worth a fortune. The contents made it even more valuable. And so he entrusted Carpus with these valuable commodities with the assumption that they would be there when he asked for them later and that Carpus would willingly give them back. I, I remember when I was in college, I bought an accounting book for like 120 bucks as a fortune back then. And I had the option of selling it back for 30. I mean, what a racket, isn't it? Of course, it's an accounting book. They kind of know how to, how to make that work. But, but I sold it to a friend of mine. I didn't even sell it to a friend. He said, can I borrow it? Because that's a lot of money. I said, yeah, sure. So he borrowed it. I for, you know, set aside that 30 bucks. Figured I'll just collect it later. He gave it back to me at the end of the semester and the front cover was ripped off. Whoops, sorry. Just gave it back to me like nothing ever happened. Now, what do you think that does to your friendship? You go disc golfing with a buddy. You throw your disc in the pond. Can I borrow a disc? Sure. You do the same thing. Can I borrow a disc? Sure. <laughs> Bro. Man, sorry about that. Okay. He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. If you can't trust people with your stuff, can you trust them with your confidence? Do you see what I'm saying? It's a lesson for all you young men, by the way, okay? If somebody gives you something, you take better care of it as if it was, you take better care of it than you would your own stuff. Because that's a way of loving and serving other people. That's a way of being trustworthy. Trustworthy, and, and if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. Carpus was clearly somebody who was trustworthy. Then you have ministry-minded Titus, Crescens, and Tychicus. Now, Titus was as much a son to Paul as, as Timothy. He has his own letter where Paul is also effusive in his affection for him, calling him his beloved son. You have, uh, he served as a go-between between Paul and the church of Corinth, uh, was dispatched to do other roles and responsibilities. Paul had a lot of trust in him. Crescens, we don't know much about him except for that Paul sent him out. And then Tychicus was used and entrusted to carry letters to various churches and communicate on behalf of Paul. Now, what's interesting is none of these men are with Paul because they were dispatched for ministry. They were dispatched for ministry. Now, Paul, he, he benefited from their company. He loved having them around. But he understood that the purpose of these Christ-centered friendships was not for his sake, but for Christ's sake. And for the sake of Christ, they were dispatched for strategic ministry assignments. 
Now, some of the, the best friends that I have made were in seminary. And, and there was a, it was a time of, of forming who I was, my ministry convictions, my philosophy. And a lot of it was done in the, in the seminary lounge. We had some great conversations. We would spend time together. But there was a certain tragedy because we knew that when graduation came, we'd all have to go our separate ways. Now, sometimes they will come back and minister in your church for a few years, which is great. But it's, uh, but there is. I mean, there was just this band of brothers. Yeah, and I even think about the military. And why is it that these, um, these soldiers form these such deep-rooted attachments to each other? Part of it is they're fighting for each other's lives. They grieve the loss of their friends. They have this transcendent purpose that they're fighting for. They're counting on each other, relying on each other, and, and they come out a band of brothers, right? And, and that's what ministry does. When you're serving through really hard times, when you're wiping bottoms in the nursery, when the deadline of Iron Man is crunching on you and you guys are rallying together and getting this done, when you pull up these great feats of ministry, when you, when you comfort somebody who is grieving, when you rally around somebody who's been widowed, I mean, all of those create this wonderful cohesion where you are sacrificing together. And that's one of the great benefits of, uh, of the gospel is that it forms a community as we serve the cause of the gospel together. You know, so often when you think about um, Christ's friendships, we often think of it in terms of what do we get out of it. For instance, when I gave that list of sacrifices, right, the sacrifice of awkwardness, the sacrifice of forgiveness, the sacrifice of time, was your first thought, no one does that for me? Or was your thought, how can I do that for other people? You see, if you're ministry-minded, you, you think, how can I do this for someone else? You're naturally other-centered. That's why ministry-minded people are very good friends. But if you want to be good friends to a ministry-minded person, you need to be ministry-minded yourself. Otherwise, you become the, the black hole, right? It becomes a ministry where they give and you take, and that's it. But somebody who's ministry-minded, they, they don't want to have an exclusive relationship because they realize that this person needs to be used to serve other needs and other purposes. Why, hey, why are you talking to me? There's somebody who's sitting by themselves. You know what? When we go to youth group, let's see who we can include. You know what? I understand. We'll get together some other time. It's more important that you meet with this couple. Right? You are a giver. You're ministry-minded, and they all understood. You know what? This friendship is meant to help us honor Christ. Not just in our own life, but also in the lives of others. That is a Christ-centered friendship, and they're wonderful. Those are the good friends. But we need to talk about the bad as well. For Demas, verse 10 in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was a, a bad friend because he abandoned Paul because he loved this present world. More than Paul, more than Christ. 
Now, there's a couple of ways that we can take Demas. We can look at him and say, you know what? He was a man who ministry was just too much for him. He had to sacrifice one too many times. He was there during the first imprisonment. You can understand why he wouldn't want to be there in the second. So he just said, you know what? I'm done. I'm going home. Right? That's one way to understand it is, is he flaked. He flaked on Paul. Another way you can understand it, and I think this is probably the stronger one, is he didn't just back away from Paul. He backed away from Christ completely. And this is why I say that. Notice how Demas was in love with this present world. You go back to verse 8, where he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, right? This is, not, this is a crown that's associated with salvation, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, isn't that an interesting criteria? Those who love his appearing. Now, who loves his appearing? Those are the ones who pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They want Jesus to come back because they do not love this world. They're not drawn to this world. They long for the next world and they long for that appearing. That was not Demas. He did not long for the next world. He did not long for the Lord's appearing. Therefore, it would be a stretch to say that he was going to receive the crown of righteousness. This is apostasy. It was too much for him. He just walked away. Two friends grew up together in youth group. Best friends. They have that necklace where there's half a heart and half a heart, right? You know what I'm talking about. I don't have that necklace, but... We'll... They go off to college. One joins the Bible study, gets involved in the church, gets active in ministry. The other one joins a sorority has a non-Christian boyfriend, parties. What is that going to do through that friendship, right? There's going to be some tension because one's Christ-centered and one's not. And ultimately, that friendship will be broken. It'll be broken. Now, in the case of Demas, the story's not over for him. We don't know how he turned out. I mean, Story's not over for that friendship. Perhaps you keep a foot in the door and you hope that eventually they do come back around. But when somebody is a bad friend and they're pursuing the Lord, if you pursue the Lord too, there will be a tension there. It will eventually break. And that's sad and it's tragic. But sometimes that's the way it just has to be until they repent. And you can still keep a relationship with that person. Now, the person you don't keep a relationship with is somebody who is evil, like Alexander. Alexander. Oh, man. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I'll talk about that more next week. But Alexander was a committed apostate. He didn't just fade into the world. He posted his story on Instagram and started a ministry to try to help other people do the same thing. He not only left the biblical faith, but let's say he joined the Catholic faith and is encouraging others to do the same. 
He has some new understanding of Christianity, and it's not enough for him to know it. You need to know it too, and he aggressively recruits people to join his movement. What do you do with a guy like Alexander? Now, the Lord's brother, Jude, half-brother, wrote a letter to a group of Christians who were under spiritual assault. False teaching was uh, permeating that church, and he took a firm stand. And he gives some wisdom about how to deal with three groups of people who are impacted by false teachers. In Jude 21 through 23, we read, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, so once you're spiritually squared away, what do you do? Well, you have mercy on those who doubt. You know, sometimes people are introduced to some concepts that just seem wrong, but they, well, I... I don't know. I mean, I, Alexander seems to be making some sense here. I, I think that maybe, you know, he has a point. But, you know, what you said here also makes a lot of sense. You know what you do with those people? You engage with mercy. You give them time to reason, to think it out. You don't get too aggressive because you don't want to push them to Alexander. You want them to think through the issue, Right? If they're confused, you have mercy on them. It's not their fault they're confused when you have false teachers teaching confusing doctrine. Next one. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Uh, these are people who are going beyond confusion. They are kind of walking to the brink and they're just kind of teetering on the edge. Now the word snatch is where we kind of get the word rapture. It's basically you grab them and you run off with them. You have a friend who has been dating a Mormon and is thinking about getting engaged. What do you do? You say, listen, you are coming with me. And you take your Bible, you preach to them, you do everything you can to stop them, right? You're just snatching them. You're not, you're not trying to reason with them anymore. You try to get them unbewitched and unenchanted. Actually, and I use that on purpose because... The time when I see single people being the most in danger of this is when they are in a bad relationship with an unbeliever or one that has become sexualized. And there are times, Becky and I can testify to this, where we take turns telling them that this needs to be over. Okay, that's the snatching one. The third one, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, Garments stained by the flesh sounds kind of innocuous, doesn't it? But when you look at some of the, the roots of this word and some of the concept that he's drawing from, this is the image. Soiled underwear. Soiled underwear. Bad soiled underwear. The type that you don't want to get close to. And from a Jewish perspective, that is just unclean. You know that phrase, I would not touch him with a 10-foot pole? That probably comes from this passage. You stay far, far away from him. The only people who encounter these people are wearing spiritually, spiritual hazmat suits. He's probably talking about the false teachers themselves. It's not your job to convert a false teacher. I have a little pastor's fellowship and we had a little bit of a, a struggle about what do you do when you have somebody who is a false teacher who wants to be a part of it. 
And one pastor was like, well, we need to see it as a ministry. And I'm like, no, we don't. They don't belong here. I have known uh, false teachers who have honey tongues. Uh, a friend of mine, his father-in-law, left his wife, spiritually justified it, came up with a theology that allowed that to happen, and this guy was honey-tongued. When you talk to him, you would think he was just a wonderful Christian man. And me knowing this information about him, and as he's talking to me, my skin was crawling. That's the guy that you stay away from. Hey, Alexander was clearly able to get a following. If the reconstruction is accurate, he was able to persuade Roman authorities to arrest Paul. He had a way with words and a way with people that would bewitch them and cast them under his spell. And if that's the person, you stay away from them. You know what? And some of my former friends have become that. Spiritually dangerous. And what do you do? You beware of them. And you warn others to do the same. So all this to say, you know, when you choose your friends, you, you choose your, your destiny. Now last week I wasn't here. Nate did an excellent job, by the way. Very thankful for that. I was at the redemption, behind the pulpit at Redemption Hill Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Why there? Because that's where my daughter's going to school. You know, for the last 10 Sundays, I would cyberstalk her to make sure she's in the church walls. You know, I <laughs> gave her a phone preloaded with that. I'm not a helicopter parent. I like drone parent, right? That's more of my style. <laughs> but I wanted to meet her friends. I wanted to meet her friends. And they were great friends, by the way. And that gave me a lot of comfort because when you choose your friends, you choose your destiny. Now, some of you, you hear this message and you're frustrated. You say, man, I want Christian friends, but no one seems to want to be my friend. And this would be my advice. The best way to make friends is to be passionate about Christ and be active in ministry. And if you walk away disappointed that, well, I only want those people to be my friends, not those people. You're not willing to take what's given to you. For you, it's not about pursuing Christ, but being part of the inner circle or whatever. Those aren't righteous reasons for pursuing friendships. And if you're getting, if you're getting resentful that people aren't reciprocating your overtures of friendship, that might say something about your intention, that for you, you want this Christian friendship for your sake instead of Christ's sake. And, and so maybe these people who are really busy with ministry don't have time to be your friends, but if they're really busy with ministry, isn't that a good thing? And so this is the question I, I would ask you. You know that phrase, I bring it up again. When you choose your friends, you choose your destiny. If people were to choose you as a friend, what destiny are they choosing? If people were to choose you as a friend, what destiny are they choosing? See, choosing to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to follow him, it will make some enemies in your life. That's just the truth. They crucified Jesus. doesn't matter how nice you are. 
but it's also an opportunity to become of a part of a spiritual family that is Christ-centered and Christ-proclaiming. And all of us have been called to that in some way. And as we pursue Christ, as we pursue to make him known, you know, the Lord will give you a support structure to help enhance the ministry that you're a part of. You'll be a part of a support structure to enhance the ministry of somebody else. And in heaven, when we have Christ-centered relationships, the one thing that we're all going to have in common is that we're going to be worshiping the same person without sin. It's all about living for other people. When you choose your destiny, when you choose your friends, when you choose the right friends, when you become the right friend that people do choose, the ultimate destiny will be the full enjoyment of the greatest relationship any of us will have. And that is the one that we'll have with our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am so thankful for um, the friends, the brothers and sisters, and for this church. Then I pray that we will be Christ-centered, that we will seek to be the friends who will push others towards Jesus Christ and push others to push others towards Jesus Christ. Lord, we understand that we're here for a little while, that the great battles that we fight will be done here. The pain, the persecution, the suffering will be experienced here. And Lord, during this time, you are forming us into a band of brothers and sisters who have this transcendent purpose. And Lord, help us to fight the good fight together. In Jesus' name, amen.